Thank you. Thank you. I did that on purpose. Um, so there you go. Uh, happy Sunday to you all. It's good to see you. And uh, yeah, we are um, we're finishing up a series today, actually, that our teaching team started uh, a few months ago in the book of Ephesians. And so today, we're going to try and land this plane. Um, our teaching team has, has tried to paint this picture of Ephesians as a letter sent to a young church that really talks about God's grand plan and design for all churches. And so we've had some, some terrific um, messages brought by, by Sarah, Ben, and even one of our elders, Ron, that has taken us through uh, Ephesians. And today, it's my pleasure to, to wrap up this series. And, and today, the conversation of Ephesians may seem like it's a little jarring because it takes a, a almost sudden turn as Paul begins to wrap up the, the, uh, the letter to this young church. And it's jarring to us, but it may not be if you can, uh, in a way, put yourself in the posture of a first century Christian. So Paul is writing from the bowels of a Roman prison to a young church that he planted himself. So he went to Ephesus and he shared the gospel with these Christians and they took this and planted this church and formed this community as he then went on and and went elsewhere to spread the gospel. And so in Ephesus, which is a Roman province or a part of the Roman Empire, there's all kinds of cultural pressures pushing in on these young believers. And so there's pressure to uh, conform to the Roman way of living and to fall back into their old ways and, and lifestyles. There's pressure to even compromise their faith and to just kind of water down the gospel message, kind of believe in Jesus, but still smuggle in some, some sin, some, some brokenness, some, some fallen ways of living. And so tremendous pressure is coming at them. And Paul is writing them to invite them to join him in fighting the good fight of faith, to, to push back against the forces that are pushing in against them, and to be aware of what those forces are, what their agenda is, and how they can walk their faith out, how they can link arms to even spread the gospel to the rest of the world. It's, it's a battle for thoughts and ideas that Paul has in mind for the church of Ephesus and even for us today. So it's interesting because um, a few years ago, I read an article in the Washington Post. And this is just fascinating. It was by uh, Dr. Richard Gallagher, who's a board-certified psychiatrist and a professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College. In, in the article, he details his 25 years of experience, not only as a psychiatrist, but also during that time as a consultant for exorcists in the Catholic Church. As a practicing Catholic himself, he was initially invited to, to do a consult on whether a young woman was having um, a, a psychotic break or some other kind of mental disorder experience or if she was experiencing demonic oppression. So the Catholic Church said, we need a psychiatrist who is also a believer in Jesus to, to help us understand what is going on in this young woman. We can go a couple ways depending on the, his recommendation and, and our consult with him. We want to know, does she need mental health help 
or does she need deliverance from demonic oppression? And so it's a fascinating read and a major news publication about the collision between mental health, between spiritual oppression, and how we as believers in Jesus are supposed to walk out our faith in this world. So currently, if, especially if you look at like the movie theaters, not, not just like major news publications like uh, The Post or The Times or any of those things, um, if you look at, at movie theaters, they're filled with an interest in supernatural power, right? I mean, move past even beyond the, um, the, all the superhero movies, although, you know, the Scarlet Witch and, and uh, Doctor Strange certainly dips into the, the supernatural realm in that sense. But if you look at the movies, the, specifically the horror movies that come out, that there is an expression of interest in supernatural power and faith and what we as humans are to do about it. So the, the, uh, Hollywood is, te- is speaking a narrative to us about how to deal with demonic oppression and ghosts and all those things. Yes, they sensationalize it. Yes, there is lots of fiction that, that overwhelms and undergirds all those narratives, but it's there. It's there for us to pay attention to. This is what people are wanting to watch and see, and they're looking to these movies even for answers in their own life. And to that, we must ask ourselves, what power does the church of Jesus Christ have to offer people today? And so that interest in the supernatural awareness of what goes on in in the world around us really dovetails with our section of Scripture today. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, are we doing okay or did I freak you out already? We're okay, right? Okay, we're good. All right. This is in verse 10. It says this, Finally, this is the final commendation, final invitation, final command by, by uh, the Apostle Paul. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may stand, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with this The belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So here, Paul makes several points we should pay attention to. First, Our power comes from God and his power. We only have power in relation to the connection we have to God himself. It's his power that is our shield. It's his power that is our protection. So through his power, God provides protection to his people. And here, Paul is referencing metaphorically the armor that a Roman centurion soldier would have equipped on himself to go into battle, okay? Paul then means to train our eyes to recognize the spiritual powers at work around us. It's not to take our sight off of God, to make those more important and more of our focus, but it's to become aware that there is a a supernatural force all around us 
That there is a battle that we've been invited to all around us that God equips us to be able to engage with through his power, okay? When we surrendered our lives to Jesus, we signed up for this battle. This is a part of it. It's not an extra. It's not like super special, uh, uh, powerful Christians get signed up for this. It's not like extra super holy people get put on the front lines of this. No, this is for everyone who follows Jesus is signed up for this battle and is engaging with supernatural forces that exist all around us. Okay, One dimension of Jesus' ministry of miracles is his encounter with the demonic. In the Old Testament, we see prophets that go around healing people like Jesus does. Uh, we see them uh, doing creative mir- miracles like creating uh, bread and food and, and, and other you know, oil and things like that. Supernatural miracles in the sky, like lots of things that Jesus did. But the thing that set Jesus apart was that he engaged with demonic powers that were oppressing people. He had authority over them. And he cast them out. He got rid of them. He freed people from their demonic oppression. In fact, one of the the, the scandals of his teaching ministry was that he preached with authority and he had authority over the demonic to tell them what to do. And people were astounded because no one had ever claimed to be able to do that before. No one had ever showed that kind of power before. And Jesus, when he brought his disciples along and trained them, he gave them power and authority over evil spirits to do the same things that he did. No one had ever claimed that kind of authority before. Okay? So, at this point, I think it might be good to just pause and ask, what is the devil? If this section is about being aware of demonic activity and oppression and how to engage it and ourselves be free from it, we need to ask the question, so what is this devil thing in the first place? Right? So, from the scripture, we don't have an exhaustive uh, biographical narrative of all of the origins and, you know, things about Satan. But we do know he was created by God as a good angel. But he rebelled and gathered a following of angels that fell along with him, that was cast out of heaven, cast out from God's presence. Jesus, Jesus and the authors of scripture call his name Satan, or literally Hasetan, which means accuser. It's important to note that he is far inferior in glory to Jesus. He is in no way an opposite equal to Jesus. He's a fallen angel. Jesus is the uncreated God made human in the flesh. Okay? So Greg Boyd in his book, God of War, says this, the single most frequent and important thing the canonical epistles say about the devil and his kingdom of powers and demons is that they have been defeated by the death and resurrection of Christ. The covenant proclamation of Christ's victory resounds throughout the whole of the New Testament, but this is not the only thing these writings have to say about the demonic realm. Since we live in a dynamic tension between the already, not yet, a Christ victory, these defeated forces have yet to be reckoned with. Between the D-Day of the cross and the V-Day of Eshaton, there are battles yet to be fought. And that's where we come in. That's where the power of God resting on the church of Jesus battles against, pushes against dark oppressive powers, where, where, uh, whether it's felt individually or in a system or a culture. We engage that. The devil sits at the top of a fallen evil hierarchy that influences physical realities that we come into contact with every day. These rulers, authorities, and powers cast their shadow over world systems. 
which can take the form of institutions, nations, or culture and ways of thinking. Okay? We can easily identify racism, like 16th, 17th century chattel slavery and, and all of its incarnation throughout world history in time and space. We can say that's a demonic institution. We can say fascist nationalism, such as in Nazi Germany, that was a demonically inspired institution and culture. We could see international trafficking rings as being demonically inspired and oppressive influences. So even things, though, it's not just out there, even things that hit close to home, such as American consumerism that just says, I need am entitled to have more, or individualism that says it's all about me and my comfort and my wants. We can see that taken to these extremes where it's, demo- it's no longer, it has the, the human natural energy, it's supernaturally imposed or, or infused with demonic activity there. When it takes and it, and, and, and it just uh, takes advantage of and it oppresses and it just ejects and, and uh, supplants, okay? So here, Paul informs us that Satan has evil schemes directed at us, and we are to engage in this personal struggle. So when we look at the library of Scripture, when we take it as a whole, it describes a life of spiritual engagement, where we're not unaware of how Satan works to scheme against us, but neither are we fixated on him or his activities. We are neither anxious about the attacks, nor we are, are we enamored with them. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction, The Screwtape Letters, which is just a classic, um, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's the pseudo letter writing from an uncle demon to a nephew demon about how to take humans down. And when they talk about the enemy, they're talking about God. And it's really fascinating. So if you haven't read that, it's a really, it's classic. It's really a great book. So in his introduction, he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And we, we have seen both. We may have even partaken in either one or maybe both of these. And so our goal is to be aware but not be enamored at all. So with that, it's fascinating to consider what Paul suggests as his solution to the problem of demonic powers And that simply is prayer. He says this in verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should... Tychicus, and that's probably not the way to say it, but we'll figure it out in heaven, okay? The dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love from, with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So, for Paul, prayer is an effective weapon to beat back the darkness and to wage the war for God's truth. Prayers that Paul would trust would include both the Spirit of God, 
for inspiration, for guidance and power, and with the people of God for connection, encouragement, and increased effectiveness. Under the propulsion of our culture's influence, though, we naturally veer towards isolation. And so we, have to, we, we need to be aware of Paul's inclusion of people to pray with him and for him. And our bent naturally in the world that we grow up in and here in, even in middle America, that our bent is toward isolation, that we can do it all on our own. And we see Paul saying, I can't do this on my own. So he is gone to the very corners of the empire preaching the gospel in power doing signs and wonders and miracles. And still here we find him saying, I can't do this without your prayer. I need them. Please send them. Right? So it is a a pushback against our culture's isolation. uh, We have this pioneering spirit, but when taken to the extreme, says that I will go where no one has gone before, and I'll do it all by myself for all of my glory. And Paul is saying, it's not about you at all. It's all about Jesus, right? So, uh, we've, we've grown up in this enlightenment uh, mentality of, I think, therefore I am. And it puts us at the center of the known universe. I have rational thought, so I can let logically step outside of myself and discern any danger, anticipate any speed bump. I can do it all myself. But as we'll see, so much of what comes at us in this spiritual warfare, this, this, this environment that we're in that's supernaturally charged, so much of what we'll shortly see plays to our emotions and is attuned to elicit a certain response from us. So therefore, we must enlist the help of others in the community of God to help us discern if what we're thinking and what we're actually feeling is from God and brings God's glory back to him. So Paul reaches out to this young church for backup in prayer. Because prayer really changes things. It really changes and influences reality. Prayer moves the heart and the hand of God. When we pray, things happen. And the opposite of true. When we don't pray, things that might have happened don't happen. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. Of course, this is not the biblical idea of prayer, nor is it the idea of people for whom prayer is a vital part of life. So with that, I want to talk about two things that will help us clarify the so-called spiritual warfare that we're engaged with and make it really practical. So I'm intentionally keeping the exegetical portion, like where we dig in the scripture, purposefully short today because I think the meat is in how we become aware of this and how we actually apply it to our lives, right? So don't you feel like sometimes you don't need more information, you just need to do the things that you know to do? I think that's called maturity. I'm not quite sure. I'm still checking in with people who know more than I do. But anyway, so the first thing I want to talk about 
is what resisting spiritual forces really looks like for us most likely in our everyday life. Hollywood, like I said, tends to sensationalize these things by portraying grotesque ghosts and demons and haunting people. But I want to suggest that spiritual oppression most often is more subtle than that. And it has to do with what goes through our minds. So Paul writes in another portion of Scripture, Colossians 2, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So the great danger here isn't physical captivity. Paul's experiencing that. The captivity he's warning them about isn't physical. It's mental. It's spiritual. It's emotional. It's a tyranny that comes from deception and oppression, from lies and falsehoods that we give in and we start to believe. It's a battle over what we believe, what we think. Paul is concerned that these Christians are susceptible to influence both through human means and also spiritual forces. And today, how this applies to us is that we live in a globalized culture, in a globalized society, which means with the advent of the information age, the internet, information is at our fingertips, which means ideas are just, like part of helping my sons become responsible digital citizens is not just what to look at or what not to look at, but what to know, what to believe, what they look at, right? Because we have been misled. We have been, I mean, this started long before the last couple election cycles and all the false news and misinformation and things. This has to do with advertising. Lies that tell us if you buy this or drive this or use this, you'll have a, a happy and fulfilled life. And we, I mean, look at the average advertisement today. They don't actually feature the product. They feature the lifestyle. Because they said, you can have this life for 1995. And we, we buy it, hook, line, and sinker. Oh, really? My teeth can be that white in that short a time? Really? I can, I can, I can just, just that low down payment, and I could buy that and drive that and hook up with her and do all those things? That sounds... Yeah, too good to be true. And so with my sons, one of the first lines that we have taught them is, and your parents taught you this, if it seems too good to be true, it usually usually is. That's right. There's a battle for our minds, for the ideas that want to implant themselves so that we believe them and we live from that place. Okay. So with the globalization of our world, it means that information can cross borders and boundaries like never before. It's astonishing breakneck speeds today. And we're living in a truly pluralistic culture, which means Christianity is just one idea that gets a seat at the table. And the table is filled with all other philosophies and religions and isms and, and cultural influences. Right? In this open square of dialogue around all these competing ideas, there are lots of falsehoods out there. Okay? And it requires us to be con- continually sleep violent, uh, vigilant, not violent, don't get violent, but vigilant with the news, the shows, and movies we watch, the books and magazines we read, and the timelines we scroll through. It comes at us from all angles, doesn't it? Don't you feel that? Don't you feel that? Have you ever gone on like a social media or a news media detox where you just don't check it for like a day even, 24 hours, you put your phone down, and it's like, 
I have thoughts of my own. It's, I'm, I'm kind of kind to myself when I think about it. Like, there's, there's a lot of clarity breaking in and into those, the fog of my, my brain. So we're, we're so used to the idea of, of hard, what's called hard power, missiles and tanks and things like that, the military might that nations wield against each other. But now we have to pay an increasing amount of attention to what's called soft power, okay? It's the cultural power that countries have uh, as, they, as, as the, the pluralistic society just opens, continues to open up and influence. For example, India has Bollywood, right? Korea has K-pop. Now, I, you may have never watched uh, a Bollywood show or, or listened to a K-pop song, but you probably know and probably have kids who have, will, and do, right? Or have you shop, shopped at Ikea? Because they're from Sweden, That's soft power in your living room. That's just how it works. We invite it into our lives. And and some of it, plenty of it's just fine neutral. It's it's just neutral. It just is what it is. But there's a lot of soft power that does have agendas sitting behind it that we have to dig into. My goal is not to make you suspicious of any culture that doesn't look like you. You understand that, right? We're not fighting a culture war. There's plenty of stuff in our own backyard that we're not susceptible to because culture is like water that fish swim in. This isn't just to say all the people that don't live in the U.S. are not invited into my home. No, it's everywhere, right? Okay. All of these cultural expressions, whether it be American or Swedish or Korean, all of them are exported throughout the world and they wield soft power. How much power does Taylor Swift have? A lot, doesn't she? She's got, I mean, she pumped, I think, over $2 billion into the economy through the sales and, and concerts and things like that. Like, that's a lot of power. No bombs, no bullets, just catchy hooks that sink into your mind, right? That's power. And that's power that we have to be aware of to know what influences and what... And, and Taylor Swift's great, but she... She has influences that she is influencing others that we need to discern, okay? Gosh, I sound like a fundamentalist, don't I? Like, what, the words that are coming out of my mouth are like, yep, it's time to buy a bunker, y'all. It's just time to stock up on pickles and... <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> I don't know what I'm tuna. I don't know. Both. Uh, so what Paul is saying here what Paul is saying here is not that it's just the human institutions that are influencing us. It's spiritual forces that are exploiting them, causing us to adapt to them and away from the kingdom influence and the kingdom worldview and the values taught through us through Scripture. It's a different understanding of warfare that we have to pay attention to, okay? So if we consider from the ways from Scripture that the devil showed up, To wield influence, such as Adam and Eve in the garden or even Jesus in the wilderness desert temptations. He didn't hit Adam and Eve with a stick. He came at them with an idea. And it's an idea that undermined connection with God and invitation to continue the relationship that they had with God. He... uh, Satan's influence often intertwines with seductive half-truths. He doesn't come with a full-force frontal attack. He comes with soft power, 
of exploitive compromise. Okay? Let me give you an example from a couple years ago. Okay? There's lots of stuff that have been said and even written about Russia's involvement in our last couple election cycles. What did they or didn't they do? What did they or didn't they know? Who were they or weren't they talking to? What we do know is that they bought lots of ads on social media. And what they did was they exploited the division that already existed in our country. And they boosted posts that maligned the other side of whatever aisle that they're trying to get at. And they bought ads on both sides to inflame the culture war. So they took what was already there. They already took the deep divisiveness that we're experiencing, like the, the visceral uh, othering that exists in our country, and they simply boosted it and bought ads to breathe fire and to exploit the division that was there, okay? Because when they can do that, when we're fighting each other, it takes the spotlight off of their country. We're less likely to do a trade embargo or to challenge their invasion, let's say, of another country like Ukraine. If we're fighting each other, we don't have the attention span or the desire to get involved elsewhere. And they know that. And that's what they did. Rolling Stone actually wrote about this several years ago. It says this in this article. Professional troll, and this is, this is good because it goes beyond just Russia. Just check this, just embrace this for your own life, however you need to hear it. Professional trolls are good at their job. They have studied us. They understand how to harness our biases and hashtags for their own purposes. They know what pressure points to push and how best to drive us to distrust our neighbors. Disinformation operations aren't typically fake news or outright lies. Disinformation is most often simply spin. Spin is hard to spot and easy to believe, especially if you are already inclined to do so. While the rest of the world learned how to conduct a modern disinformation campaign from the Russians... It is from the world as public relations and advertising that they learned their craft. To appreciate the influence and potential of Russian disinformation, we need to view them less as Boris and Natasha and more like Don Draper. Do you, do you guys even know who Boris and Natasha are? That's a deep cut. If anyone has some gray hair, go ask them, okay? Some of you may not even know who Don Draper is, and I just I can't help you. So anyway. <laughs> so I think this is a useful word picture. This is a useful word picture to understand the schemes of, of demonic oppression, how Satan opposes us. The enemy takes whatever dark desires that you're working to suppress, and he will try to focus in specifically on those things. He will take a small negativity and push it to the extreme. He will take a little doubt, that small feeling of anxiety, and he exploits it to blow it up into something massive that overtakes you and your life so it seems the most important thing to take care of right now, even more important than God. He doesn't create it. He simply uses it and breathes demonic fire all over it to inflame it. So Dallas Willard, again, ideas and images are a primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in society. They determine how we take the things and events of ordinary life. They control the meanings we assign to what we deal with, and they can even blind us to what lies plainly before us. Again, this is seen over and over in biblical and in Christian history and in human life generally. Their power for evil cannot be overestimated, and it is constantly at play in most human governments. Ideas and images are accordingly the primary focus of Satan's efforts to defeat God's purposes with and for humankind. When we are subject to his chosen ideas and images, he can take a nap or a holiday. 
Thus, when he undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was with the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. This is the basic idea uh, back of all temptation. God is presented as depriving us by his commands of what is good so that we, uh, we think we must take matters in our own hands and act contrary to what he said he has done. So resisting Satan sometimes is as simple as monitoring your intake of information and being aware of the thoughts that you think and not taking everything at face value. It really is sometimes as simple as that. Okay, now I told you I wanted to address two things. The last thing will be quick, but I think it's equally important. Some of you may be here and may be thinking, okay, I understand that the war is for our mind. I fought that war. I, I, I have enough reps to be able to discern God's voice, temptations from the enemy, and really, I just don't give that much attention to it anymore. There's some of us that, as we have grown and matured in the Lord, your focus just really isn't on Satan at all. Like, this is information that you have dealt with, you have internalized, and you're kind of looking to, like, what is the next challenge? And for that, because I know there are some here like that, for that I commend you, and I tell you, there is more. And, and I say this also to give a vision to those of us who are younger here as well, or who are watching or listening online, those of us who want to know, is this fight worth it? And what is over this hill? What is on to the next thing look like? Okay? So there is a story. Oh, and, and I just want to say this. It's because not every struggle you have is demonic oppression. Not everything you deal with it is hard. I mean, some of it is just darn inconvenience, Right? But some struggles, some of the lifelong struggles you even have, it, it's not necessarily the enemy that's breathing fire on it. It really is a struggle that you've been walking out. And you've been patiently asking God, please deal with this, please give me grace for this, please take this away. Okay? In fact, if we believe the lives of the desert mothers and fathers, it seems like resisting evil takes an important turn the longer you walk with Jesus and the more spiritually mature, like I said, that you become. So there's a story of a young author, and he goes out to visit an old monk to seek wisdom and to know how to continue growing and walking with God. He says, do you still wrestle with the devil, Father Mercurios? The old monk reflected for a while and then replied, not any longer, my child. I have grown old now, and he has grown old with me. He doesn't have the strength. I wrestle with God. With God? exclaimed the young writer. And you hope to win? I hope to lose, my child, replied the old ascetic. My bones remain with me still, and they continue to resist. Rollheiser, out of that story, Ronald Rollheiser in his book Sacred Fire says this, We're always struggling and doing battle with something, but the forces that beset us change with the years. When we are young and still trying to establish an identity, these forces are very much embedded in the chaotic, fiery energies of restlessness, wanderlust, sexuality, and the quest for freedom, and the sheer hunger for experience. As we sort out more who we are, make permanent commitments, and take on more and more responsibilities, we soon find ourselves beset by a new set of struggles. Disappointment, tiredness, boredom, frustration, resentment. Consciously and unconsciously, we begin to sense that the big dream for our lives is over. Without it, 
it's ever paying the huge dividends we expected. We become disappointed that there is not more, that we have not achieved more, and that we ourselves are not more, as we sense ourselves stuck with second best, reluctant to make our peace there. All those grandiose dreams, all that potential, all that energy, and what have we achieved? That's That's a real struggle that many who progress into what's known as the second half of life have. Okay? Rollheiser is saying, at some point in this second half of life, where we stop trying to conquer the world and change everyone around us and focus on the ways in which we are the origin of hurt from those same people. Along with that comes disillusionment and the wrestling of reality. And this, this is a grace. This is a gift to us. Because we begin to realize while the world is trying to tame all the dragons, it's enough to be tamed yourself. And in that place, we realize that this surrender is all that God wanted from us in the first place. And that's exactly where we have the most to give away to others. So I'm not sure where you're at today. I'm not sure whether you're locked in some spiritual battle or if you're struggling to believe there's anything spiritual out there beyond the material, tangible world that we're experiencing. So today, I don't, I don't necessarily want you to go out and do something. I don't want to give you something practical to put this into practice where you do more. I actually want to give an invitation to surrender more to a deeper place of putting whatever that is that you brought with you that's whispering in your ear, that has your attention. I just want us to place that in God's hands. So I'm going to invite the worship team and, and uh, Sarah as a communion server to come up. Why don't you stand with me? Because I'm just going to invite you to pray in the final moments of our time together today. I invite you to pray this. God, I put this struggle in your hands, and I trust your power to protect me and bring good from it. So in your own way, maybe even in your own words, whatever that is, we're just inviting you today to step to a place of, of deeper trust with God, that his power, that his grace is enough. As we end our time, as we end the book of Ephesians, we are again going to end with the Lord's Supper. So communion is a time that we celebrate, and we've done this uh, as a rhythm and a practice every week. Uh, It's a time to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus when he took bread and he tore it, and he said, this is my body, take and eat, Uh, it's given for you. And he shed his blood on on the cross, and, and to signify that, he poured wine and He gave it to his friends and he said, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. This is the blood of this new covenant. So when you're ready, uh, when you maybe take a minute, um, say that prayer, sit in this uh, moment. We're not in a hurry. We're not in a rush. You can come up this middle aisle, uh, tear off bread, or there's actually a gluten-free or or an option with tongs there in the middle. Dip it in the cup and partake with us. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.